Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. This is the European episode. I have Stephen here with me. Hey, Stephen, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Beck. Thanks for being here. So full disclosure, you are my mom's second husband. So y'all been married about 10 years. That's right. And you are a transplant. So mm-hmm. you do not have a Texan accent. And it's not even an Australian accent. <laughs> it is an English accent. So um, I appreciate you being here. And I brought you on today because you had a very unique situation in the last several years with your mom um, and and helping with her. But before we dive into that, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, I'm uh, 67 years old. and I was born in a place called Solihull, which is just outside Birmingham in the West Midlands in England. Um, I was married. This is, my, as Becky said, this is my second marriage. Um, Jackie and I had been friends for a while and eventually I relocated after her divorce and uh, ended up here in uh, San Antonio, Texas. And that's where I've been for the last 10 years. Can you tell me more about yourself, like the hobbies, what you enjoy doing? Well, so older now, so I can't do a lot of things that I used to do. I also was uh, an avid long-distance walker. We used to do orienteering and uh, things like that when I worked for Land Rover. They were sponsored. Um, shooting, even in England, I was a clay pigeon shooter. Um, Fancy you found yourself in Texas. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was a uh, was and am. Um, I read an awful lot, you know, constantly. I'm not a great TV watcher. I prefer to have a book. But, uh, yeah. And, of course, I like to socialise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. And pick kids up after school, so. Yeah, well. <laughs> they're my grandkids, so. <laughs> They'll keep you busy. They will, yeah. And when, when I met you, you had already told me about losing your dad. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that was very traumatic for you. Um, yeah. What? How old were you when that happened? I was about early 30s, I think. Early 30s, okay. Yeah, yeah. Dad had, um, they were very active, my mother and my father. They were in long-distance walking groups and uh, dance groups, etc. And the one day while they were doing a rather long walk, <clears throat> Dad got chest pains, and uh, they told him he'd had minor heart attacks. And after investigation, they said that he needed a uh, triple bypass, um, which, as it transpired, Mum was still working at the time. She was uh, a nurse, an RN, and she worked for Land Rover, <clears throat> and she got private insurance. So they got Dad. Dad had the surgery. Um, which, well, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. <laughs> um, so anyway, after the, the so-called recovery of the, the transplant, he was an avid golfer, so he decided to go and play golf. And instead of taking it slowly like anybody would, he played three rounds of golf, came home and decided to paint the closet outside and had a massive heart attack and died. So that was, oh yeah, I found him dead in the coal house. <laughs> so, the, the what house? What's that called? Uh, the coal house. It's under the stairs oh. where they used to deliver coal. Well, um, I'm sorry to hear that. So I know um, since I've known you, there was a point at which your mom mm. actually crossed the Atlantic and came here. I don't remember what year that was. And I remember her being here briefly. And I did get to meet her. And she... Um, would send stuff for the kids and so forth. But I obviously don't know her um, as well as you did. And I followed what you went through as her function uh, got more challenged. And um, and your unique perspective is that you had already moved here many years before uh, to the States. And you're also an only child. So that's another um, important factor. And so you were in charge of managing her, but you lived across a very, very large ocean. So can you talk about how that happened? I mean, even just coming here to the States at first and then when you started to see things kind of tick up. 
Yes, I mean, mum came over twice. Um, the first time she was still reasonably fit um, and active. Um, we were on the river walk in San Antonio and she stumbled the day before she was due to go home and we didn't know at the time, <clears throat> but she broke her bone in her foot, in her ankle. Mum being mum, she's very, very strong-willed, uh, always has been. And unfortunately, I'm out of the same mould. She wouldn't go to the doctor or to the emergency room and insisted on flying home the next day, which she did. Um, I've got three sons, grown-up sons, uh, who live in the UK. And two of the three were regular visitors to mum. They used to go weekly, take a shop in if she wanted to go or just be there to mow the lawn or just to chat. And I started getting calls from them saying that um, grandma was going downhill rapidly. I used to speak to my mum at the same time every week on a Thursday at 10 o'clock uh, because of the time difference. And I started to note that she was repeating herself a lot. The conversation, if you can call it a conversation, became very one-sided and it was as if it was scripted and she talked over me so it was basically mum saying the same thing every Thursday and me listening <laughs> and then saying goodbye but of course not being there to actually see her that often it was it's very difficult to judge you know how the decline was how fast the decline was coming on. She came again later, uh, a couple of years later, and then we did notice a big difference in her. She was, she'd lost a lot of weight. Um, she hadn't got the energy that she had before. She was quite happy to just sit around and talk and reminisce constantly about the same subjects over and over. And Jackie, Jackie, bless her heart, she just sat there and listened because we'd heard this, the conversation over and over and over. Inevitably, she, she has to go home, and I'm, I live here now. I'm married. You know, my wife's got a, her own business. Um, we're not well off. So it was a big thing to keep going backwards and forwards to England you know, it's expensive and time-consuming. And uh, Jackie's not that super healthy, and that was very stressful for her, the travel especially. So we used to go, I'd, I'd go over every couple of years initially. Yeah, at least once a year. And then in the end, it was the boys, especially my middle son, who now seemed to pick, took upon himself to be her, uh, Main advocate? Man, uh, exactly, advocate. You know, he was telling me, he was getting, this is getting worse and worse. Grandma needs this, needs that, and she won't let us do anything for her. So it became not so much a once a weekly visit to take her to get her hair done or to take her shopping. They were telling me that she wasn't eating, there was, wasn't food in the fridge, and she was vehemently denying it and telling me what she cooked every day and et cetera, et cetera. So the relationship between my son and I was becoming strained, to say the least. Um, my youngest son, he had virtually given up going there um, because... It always turned into more of an argument than a visit. So she fell. The first of quite a few falls. And she recovered. And so I tried talking to her. She lives in a two store she lived in a two-story house. Um one bathroom, which is upstairs. And we tried to get her to have a lift chair put in so she could get up and down stairs. The stair lift to go up the stair stairs. lift, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and she kept having falls and she, she just worked, she wasn't open to um, having anything done. 
it was the old saw of saying, oh, I'm old now, I'm not wasting my money on this and that. But she was totally um, against having any kind of outside intervention, i.e. home help, or there was no way she was going into sheltered accommodation or anything like that. And, and, and just to clarify, in the UK, those services are actually fairly robust, right? Mm-hmm. So if she had accepted that's right. somebody to come in and help with cleaning and showering and all that stuff, that was available to her? That was available. And I actually arranged it. We arranged for um, a home health person to come in in the morning because people were telling us that she was getting up, not getting dressed. She was just spending all day in her night clothes, uh, sitting in the same chair. And as I said before, not eating. And the memory was getting worse. So I went over and had a family meeting, which included my mum. And we tried to, re- well, I tried to reason with her into accepting somebody to come in once a day, help her bathe, make her breakfast, um, maybe run the vacuum around for her, things like that. Make sure that she was okay to get in the shower and or, or the bath and she was having none of it so in the end what did she say when she would have none of it did she say it was too expensive too invasive she, privacy issues privacy issues she didn't feel she needed anybody there she didn't want to be dictated to in her own home uh, if she wanted to sit around in the night clothes that was up to her and she was her a nurse herself so she wasn't that's correct unfamiliar with yeah, you know, some extra medical support or people checking on. Oh no, no, she was um, she was a nurse, and again, she was type she was she was a hard person to get on with. She was very opinionated. Um, it was her way or the, you know, n- or nothing. Um, as I say, she was very, very opinionated. And that wasn't new. <laughs> that wasn't the no. That was from as long as I've known her. Um, she was very volatile. She could um, lose her temper really quickly. And I tried to play things down as much as I could. But in the end, it became completely obvious that she. Ha- I, I told her, if you're staying in this house, you have to have somebody coming in and helping you because her 90-year-old neighbour used to come in and sit with her while she showered and what have you. Then she fell. She couldn't do that. Her daughters were marvellous. My sons couldn't do that because... They didn't think it was appropriate, you know, and I totally understand that. And so in the end, she accepted having somebody come. We then found out that she cancelled that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not told anybody. Then they can always say they accepted it, but you don't have to follow up and know that they yeah. cancelled it. And unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, we spoke to the doctor and, and he'd been in and seen her. And he said, well, unfortunately, she's not what you could call unsound or, you know, She's still making her own decisions. She was still capable of making her own decisions, and we really shouldn't be pressurising her that much. And until it came to a a position where she couldn't make good decisions for herself, there's not much that anybody could do about it, which is hard to accept when you can see things that could easily be done. And let's at this point, let me say, Mum wasn't rich, but she isn't or wasn't hard up. She was very frugal through her life, and very. she invested well. She'd got money in the bank that could have easily put all these things into place, which would have made her life much easier, and she'd most likely still be alive today if she had done what we wanted her to do. But she wouldn't. That was the end of story. And then, unfortunately, a few years ago, she had a really bad fall. Um, but this time she hit her head. She hit her head and she was bruised from like, oh, she was black and blue all down one side. She'd fell walking through the bathroom door and she'd hit her head on the commode and the pedestal of the sink and was wedged there for a couple of hours. Um, unfortunately, she'd cancelled the home health person who should have been there at that time, and it wouldn't have happened. So nobody found her for quite a long time. 
a neighbour came in and found her. Uh, called my son, who was there. And a few days later, she was hospitalised. And a few days later, one of my sons deemed to tell me that she'd fell and was in hospital. And my wife and I, Jackie, then decided it was time that we got to go over, regardless of what they said. They said, don't bother coming. She's in hospital. There's nothing you can do. Well, we felt that we'd, it wasn't their responsibility to be dealing with this. It wasn't fair. So we closed up the house and we decided to go over, which we did. Unfortunately, then COVID hit. Oh, yeah. I remember that. So mom's in the, in the, the hospital. We couldn't go visit. They wouldn't allow us in. And when they did eventually allow me in, it was quite obvious that Mama got serious dementia. Well, and that's possible that she was trending that way, but then the head injury was so significant yeah. that it kind of pushed it over into she wasn't um, making as much making any sense or oriented, didn't know, kind of. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. The, the, when I spoke to the um, the physician there, he told me that she had this was because of the fall. It had yeah. accelerated the the dementia, and I said, "Okay." They said she's got to leave here now. We've stabilised her. She knows, needs to go to a rehab place. Yeah, and we had to organise that. So we organised her to go to a place, and within a week, they threw her out. <laughs> Because they, she was having a lot of behaviours. By then, her behaviour, she was... Part of the head injury. Too. Yeah, she was seeing things. She was belligerent. She'd become semi-incontinent. She was a... Mum... I'd never heard mum swear much in later life. She was foul-mouthed. She was just seeing things, and they she was thrown out of the one home, and we were told that we'd got to find somewhere... Um, permanent for her that specialised in people who got advanced dementia. Um, again, friends and neighbours there and my sons couldn't take this in. We saw Grandma so-and-so weeks ago before she fell and she was fine. Okay, she was a bit scatty. And so I recorded because I was getting a lot of pressure um, from my children to relocate back to the UK so that mum could come home. And it was made quite clear that they expected me as an only child to do that and to take responsibility and to come home and live with mum. I naturally pointed out the shortfall there of the fact that I'm on my second marriage and I don't think that my current bride would really appreciate being forced to relocate to the UK where she couldn't see her own children and grandchildren. So that didn't go down well. Um, so we found a private home for her because unfortunately in the UK, if you have assets over £6,000, you're not entitled to anything free. You know, for for senior living. For senior living, you've got to sell your house, sell, cash in all your assets, and you can put six thousand pounds in a bank account, which they can't touch. Which is what, like eight thousand dollars? Like eight thousand dollars, yeah. Which is yeah. Enough. And then they would take out the money per week for private hospitalisation or for the home. That in England is uh, uh, the same as here in the States is very, very expensive. So they don't have the system we have here <clears> where, <throat> or I guess that is their system, except they have you sell your assets here in the States. Depending which state you're in, you could protect a homestead or um, other yeah. retirement accounts or something. But there it was very clear that you either had to have you had to spend down to that point. Correct. And if yeah. you had any money, then you'd spend all that, spend through all of that, but yeah. you could keep about $8,000. That's right. And we worked it out that it would maybe keep her in, in that home if they kept her there. Um, she could be there for like five, six years. 
And if that's what it took, that's what it took. So once again, that broke her heart. Even when, even though she was had a, a, advanced um, mental problems by then, the minute you mentioned her not going home or selling the house or anything, that just sparked off even more trouble. Um, anyway, we got her in the home, set up. Remember, this is all during COVID. Right. And we're in lockdown. Right. And in lock when I talk about lockdown. It was uh, worse in the UK. than Oh, it's, yeah. You couldn't go out of your house. You were only allowed out your house an hour a day to go shopping and then go straight back in your house. M me being a far, well, from America, now from America, and my wife being from America, we had people coming to the house daily to make sure that we hadn't left the premises. We were getting phone calls from the government, you, you know, to make sure that we were locked down. So it's very difficult to do anything. Obviously, we've got to clear the house and get rid of mom's stuff that had been there for generations in the loft, etc. which we tried to do as much as we could. And by then, my sons had come round to the fact, and my ex-wife was really good about it as well. Um, they couldn't do it quickly, but they would get rid of stuff little by little. We'd put the house on the market, and that would go to funding mom's home. So we flew back to the States, and three weeks later, we got a phone call to say that mom had died. So, ironically, from COVID. From COVID, yeah, she got she was in a home that was locked down, and she got COVID. How I don't know, but they didn't report any other cases. So, mom died. So, obviously, I had to go back, um, arrange funeral, which was really traumatic because there were so many people dying in the UK that you couldn't get a funeral. I mean, we had to wait two and a half months for the actual funeral. And even that was limited to 10 people and you couldn't have a, a reception or anything. So I convinced Jackie to stay home. There's no point. There was no furniture in the house by then. Yeah. Um, no bed or anything like that. So we arranged the funeral. I booked a flight there, arrived the day before, went to the funeral and flew back the day, day after. This, again, also caused a lot of resentment with my children. Yeah. Um, and that's when things started to get nasty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it was a pretty traumatic time for everybody. Well, I think, um, and I'm just on the periphery here of watching that, is there's a lot of, if only somebody could just go home and take care of a person like this. And um, I remember talking about it at the time and the way that her needs were described, that this is somebody that would require 24-7 care. Yeah. Um, they could easily get up and fall again if somebody wasn't there. They needed help going to the bathroom multiple times a day. And so... I think people underestimate um, how much care. I mean, it, it wouldn't even, I, I say this, not, I wasn't there, but it, it likely wouldn't have even been enough for you and my mom to move back there and take care of her. Um, no. That situation, especially when you have a cognitive impairment, um, is, is the safety issues are every minute of every day. And so that requires, um, you know, even sometimes professional skilled support and what that looks like. Um, and I mean, grief is a very complex thing. And I know that, that it's a, what you're describing is an already existing family dynamic complex issue. And then, um, when your mother passes away, then the tension, the, um, you know, the, the stories of you should have done this, or you could have done this, um, you know, those are hard to overcome in other people's heads, right? Correct. And you can't, I mean, that's not, not worth it. But as far as you helping to, to manage her, 
Um, how did you feel about it? Like what cultural or familial or religious influence did you have um, to take care of your mom? Like did your parents take care of their parents or like where did that come from? That was the, the, that was the thing with my mom. She was everybody's, um, everybody went to mom. Her mother, her father was a, a coal miner. He got uh, black lung very young and died. And she nursed my grandfather, then my grandma, her mother. She had um, she was on the original list for a heart transplant. She had um, really bad heart. She passed, and mom had nursed her. She at the time, mom was becoming a nurse, and um, <clears throat> they wouldn't give her the time off, so she quit and went and virtually lived with my grandmother to nurse her until she died. Then her younger sister got cancer, and mom nursed her until the day she died. Um, she'd nursed my dad. So she, she, even though she was really hard to get on with, she had a hard life. She worked full-time um, nights so that she could be there with whoever needed her. Uh, my dad always had really bad health. And until his 40s, he, was, he spent a lot of time in hospitals. Um, he seemed to get much healthier in his 40s until he had his heart attack. Um, so, yeah, mum was – that was the way it was, and I think that's what she expected of me, being an only child, that if anything happened, I had to promise that she would never go in a home and I would be there to look after her. How did you feel about that? Well, as I said, mum and I were very much alike. We both got very fiery tempers. And even though we loved each other, we didn't like each other much. We could spend very short periods of time in the same vicinity without there being some kind of conflict. I wasn't talking to her enough or I was disrespecting her with the way I talked and it's obvious you don't want to be here. So I knew it would never have worked. For, for reference, y'all had lived together... <clears throat> Oh, yes. At some point yeah, after, recently. After my divorce, um, for two years, I lived with my mum. So you had already <laughs> yes, I'd, been down that road. <laughs> we'd already been down that road and it didn't work. It was very tense. It was affecting my health um, mentally and physically. Um, it drove me to drink and other things. You know, it, it, was, it just... It was, Quite obvious it wasn't going to work. She didn't really want me there. I definitely didn't want to be there. And the thought of actually having to deal with mom when she was worse than she was then, to me, seemed totally impractical. There was no way it was going. It would have either killed me or killed her first. You know, it wasn't going to work. Um. So it was really difficult because, yes, I felt really conflicted because I'm an only child, and, yeah, in theory, it was my responsibility. But you can only do so much. And I knew that if I moved into that place, it would have been permanently, it would have been really bad for both of us. What it, what it says... Um... <clears throat> By the time this airs, I'll, I'll reference back to the podcast with Jalen and then a podcast later with Craig. Um, when there seems to be conflict between uh, one part of this, you know, of a marriage, one person's aging parent versus what your your current spouse wants, um, it seems like the spouse wins. And I don't mean to set that up in a no, no. Like it's a lottery or something, but like there are many life situations where those things can be in direct conflict. Yes. And I, I want to know how you worked through that in your head. It was, I was now Mayor. married 
living in America. Really happy. I got a, a whole new life. Um, and mom was in her 80s. And the conflict was, was I willing to risk that? How long did mom could have lived till she was 100, in theory? Right. Was I willing to give up 20 years of my life and ruin the relationship with my wife? Because... Yeah, there was zero chance she was going to go over there. Oh, no. We, we even spoke to her about her selling the house. And coming here. And coming here. And we said, and we will buy a property where you can have your own space. Um, but we will be there, you know, so to check up on you and you'll be safe. It'll be more, well, it'll definitely be safe because we buy a, a one-story place. There'd be no stairs. We could modify the bathroom for her um, and things like that. But, again, that was... A, a real no. She was no. It was just no. We're not even considering that. So that was one thing out the way. So all it was really, the only other thing was, as I said, relocating back to the UK to look after her. And it pains me to say, even though I love my mum, I didn't love her enough to want to risk the rest of my life. And I've been judged for that. <laughs> well, and I would say, just for context, uh, speaking from a clinical perspective, I still think that there's maybe an error in the assumption that any rant, you know, any adult moving back and her coming back to the home you describe in that condition, mm -hmm. if the bathroom is upstairs, then you have somebody who's basically stuck upstairs now, and somebody is coming down to get food and items and taking them back upstairs. And um, I know the homes there are much smaller than we think of here in the States. And so this was not a robust um, dwelling that, that would be easy to do that. Um, That's correct. Yeah. And so as my, and I, um, <clears throat> I hear the pain and your story and then the way that you talk about it. But I guess if I was just from a clinical perspective, the chances that, that she would be able to go back home in that condition with any number of family members would have been at least do it safely um, would have been low, especially if she wasn't accepting, she had already made clear that there wasn't going to be a stair lift. And if we had, um, I remember when we talked about it the first time that she had said something to the effect of you can put it in, but I'll never use it, which is even worse because yeah. now you have this expensive, obstructive um, thing attached to the stairs, which now make the stairs even less safe. If you're not going to use it. Correct. Um, yeah. Mom was so, going up and down the stairs on her backside for a year, which I didn't know. You know, she went, when we were there, she would struggle up, you know, right. and, you, and, and she occasionally she could get up and down, but we were told that she was literally going up and down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She, she said, oh, I'll just go up and down on my backside. Said so he might take me an hour, but, uh, you know, I've got all day. And it was... It was completely clear that it was, it was um, a ridiculous situation. She needed to be in a one-story building that was safe for her. But unfortunately, by that time, um, it was too late. And in the end, after this really bad fall um, and the rapid decline mentally, the doctor there told me that she could never go home. So we're not discharging her to go back to a house, right. even if you're there. Well, even if you're there, said so you, you can't <clears throat> cope. How are you going to get a, a woman up and down the stairs and bathe her and right. get her to the appointments? And get her to the appointments, toilets, that kind of thing. Yeah, the second the <clears throat> second floor stuff is a big deal. Oh, it is. Yeah, uh, it's a safety issue too. So if you find somebody that is having a medical emergency and they're up a flight of stairs and you're there by yourself, yeah. Um, even to get uh, like the fire department or somebody to come out, um, you know, it can be really challenging to, you know, yeah. to, to get people out. And 
Um, so, so I guess you have a complicated situation where the medical community is saying she needs to go here, but she doesn't want to go there. And the rest of the family uh, feels some guilt or obligation to get her home. But then it's decided that the person that would facilitate that is also the same person who lives in a different country. Correct. That's it. And yeah, so that's not complicated at all, Stephen. <laughs> no, no, no. It isn't all that complicated. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. I know, but I mean, this, the, the problem is here as well, it isn't just the effect between me and my mother. It was right. a knock-on effect of what it's done to um, family relationships. Two of my sons never speak to me now. Um, only my oldest son, who was the one who never got involved at all with any of this. Yeah. He lived, he's got a, a, his wife had, had a miscarriage. They lived away. Um, and he's just said, I can't be dealing with this. You know, I've got my own life. I've got, I'm working. It's 60 miles each way. I can't be there. And I, I don't intend doing it. And so luckily I've still got a good relationship with him my oldest son, because he realises being an outsider looking in on the situation that I couldn't have done much else um, in reality. You know, he said, well, what reasonable person could expect you to keep coming from America or even leaving your life there to come back here and deal with an unknown time frame? Um, I wasn't. I was already retired, so I'm on a fixed budget as well. Um, it just wasn't practical, but it's taken a real um, toll on what's left of the family. Uh, hopefully, as years go by, it may change, but I very much doubt it. Well, I you know I'm stepping in outside of my lane, but. There's a lot mixed up in how people process grief and guilt. Mm -hmm. And when I see situations where there's the obvious person who dropped the ball or like in the perception, and I'm not saying it, when you think, well, that was clearly this person's role and they didn't do it then, it, then it sort of absolves you of how they feel, which is this was a difficult situation. We saw her get sicker and you know they didn't have a grandfather they grew up with right at least on your side because he died so young <clears throat> and so i'm sure there was that connection and when they have to process anything that's hard such as the decline that you're describing um it's very convenient um and i'm not trying to be dismissive of how they feel but I see this in a lot of contexts that set up. It's very convenient. You're a very convenient um, scapegoat. <laughs> I don't know if that's yeah. The 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 reason this went poorly is because you didn't do what you're supposed to do. Yeah, and that is hard to overcome, uh, especially if um, it was if the if the situation itself was traumatic. Regardless, then whatever gets experienced, it it could be well that you know so and so didn't try hard enough yeah. or you know, wasn't willing. And, and what I, what the reason I brought up the, the prior episodes is I think it's difficult to underestimate, um, you know, you don't time your life in a way like, well, when they get sick, I'll make sure I'm very unavailable. The idea is that everybody ages at different rates and you live your life because that's all you can do. And, um, and so in, in thinking about aging parents, if something goes, wrong with a with the parents health then oftentimes there's almost like a inventory of who's doing what and what is more important right so if this person is working well the, they certainly can't help because they're working or oh if this person has you know this <coughs> other and i'm not saying that i mean this is just a natural way to go through and be like well the person that's not working that has the most time you know then that person it sort of holds the bag if you will um, but I always find that's one of the reasons I do this podcast is I find it interesting to see how different families work through this. I mean, you mm -hmm. can rewrite that entire story and the story could be, 
wow, what a difficult situation. Look how much you showed up. Look at how much you managed. Look at how much you did. Um, and trying to keep your life together and your marriage together and still show up for her. Um, and so that cultural difference, that familial difference is, is what I find so fascinating because yeah. that you could have this entire situation all over again and have the strongest relationship within the family um, because everybody went through a hard time and, and grandma passed away. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I'm sorry that it went the other direction for you. And I, I know we've talked about that before and um, knowing your story and having kind of been around um, the decisions that y'all were having to make, I um, obviously see it from a very, a, a, a very heavy issue. It's a lot of, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't type that's correct situations and i think there's a lot of people that find themselves um in those situations uh with an aging parent so if you had anything um having gone through the storm and i know it's not without the damage you mentioned but um what would you say to somebody that was kind of grappling with the same conflict right now all you can do is your best um Unfortunately, sometimes your best isn't enough, but you can only do what you can do and what you're allowed to do. And try to come to terms with that fact and not feel guilt or remorse because you can't change the past um, and you have to live with the outcome. But you've got to carry on. The person who's left, what do you do? You know, wear sackcloth and ashes the rest of your life. It's not a good thing. And unfortunately, it most likely happened to most people in some form, you know, um, dependent on the main thing, money, and where you are. And the way the other person is. <laughs> right. If, if that person won't accept any help, you shouldn't feel guilty for not being able to do anything about it because at the end of the day, it's not your life. Well, I want to I wanna circle back to that because that's a, a common theme as well in these conversations, which are if the goal is for you to take care of her and you offer – a situation such as, okay, you can move over here or we can set this up and I'll, I'll manage this. And the answer is no. Um, then obviously that person has the autonomy to choose that, but the story can't be, you did nothing. It, the, the real story is that there's a preference amongst many options and yeah. the preferred option was not what was ultimately chosen. That's right. Um, and so I, I I always like to clean up the language when I have these conversations of, well, you know, if somebody says, well, my mom wouldn't have allowed this, so I went above and beyond, which is fine, except that we have to be very clear that there, in almost every situation, are multiple viable op- options, especially if there's some amount of funding available, and that it's it's honoring the specific preference of that person amongst a long list of other alternative options is something that might not be, you know, um, di- you know, possible. Yeah. Um, so it makes me think of that. And the other thing that, that the story <clears throat> reminds me of, and this is something that, that this demonstrates beautifully is a lot of people misconceive what we call capacity here in the United States, which is your ability to make your own decisions, good or bad. Right. We always think that it's like, you know, a black and white thing. Like either you have capacity and you're making decisions like you normally would, or you don't have capacity. And the truth is it's more like stoplight and you live most of your life in the green. You might move into the yellow and you're making decisions that aren't in your best interest, maybe aren't great decisions, but they're not extremely far off from where you were before, but the the government and it's an actual involved process can't call that red until you are, it is it, it like it has to be clear to everybody yeah. and multiple people have to agree 
This person has no idea what they're doing. And so what happens is you can run up against that red light. You can be at the very end of the yellow light yeah. and still have capacity. And at the end of the day, um, that's the system we have in place and it protects people from being run over mm-hmm. by people who think they know better and would run in and put a stair lift in when they didn't want it. You yeah. should get arrested for that because you're vandalizing the home or you're sending strangers to the house that they don't want. I mean, from their perspective, especially when you're losing a lot of your abilities, the last thing you want to lose is your um, respect for your decisions that you make, Yeah, assuming that the decisions are deemed by appropriate professionals as representative of your best at that time. And so I, I, I go back to um, even watching people make, uh, you know, decisions that are are making the family stressed out. Like you're not going to the doctor, you're not taking your medications, you're, you say you're eating, but you're not, you know, and that is a very challenging, stressful situation to be in for the family. But you go back to honoring the choices that they're making so long as they're not meeting the criteria for that. And if somebody says, well, why should I do that? Well, that's actually legally what you have to do. Like you can't, I mean, not that I've ever seen this become a criminal case, but you cannot physically go in and make somebody else get showered by yeah. by an aide. I mean, you should, like, that's illegal. And so it's like, I, I think people, like, moralize it and say, well, shouldn't you push really hard and harass that person long enough to be able to do something that's very safe? And then I, my question is, like, well, who are you serving yourself or them? Because now you get to feel better mm-hmm. that they were harassed into taking a shower but they, that person has now lost a little bit. Yeah. Right. Dignity. The dignity of making that decision and t- making the choice. If I want to stay in my pajamas all day, yeah, that's up to me. That's and God knows there's enough Americans staying in their pajamas all day. So <laughs> if that was illegal, you know, yeah. that would have, that would have already been an issue. And so I think it just puts you right back into um, people that you care about and a little piece of you is in them and you wanting to, harass or manipulate or force them into a different set of decisions is more about you than it is about them. Mm -hmm. And you can tell yourself that it's because you care about them and you do, or you want what's best for them, but it's just an incomplete sentence. Yeah. Right. Correct. Well, of course everybody would want it to be showered, right? Everybody would want, you know, whatever it is insert there. And so um, what it does, what it feels like to me is it can also take you out of connection because if you're sitting on the phone with somebody and you're just telling them everything they're doing wrong and, yeah. and the reason you should, I don't know that you're like connecting either. And so it sounds like you attempted some language with her and yeah. it, uh, she was resistant till the end. Right? right till the end. Yeah. I mean, she actually told me, well, I, I, I spelled it out to her. I said, mom, you've fallen two or three times now. I said, the next time it could kill you or you could be, do real damage and she goes and said that's my choice she says i don't care and i mean that is you your first reaction to it oh you talk you're being you're being silly now you don't mean that but she did mean it she you know she said it's my life if i fall i fall and how can you argue against that you can only say, oh, you don't mean it, or, well, that's silly because if you do that, then look, think of the rest of us having to visit you in hospital every day and all this kind of stuff, which is, to me, kind of blackmail right. in a way. You know, and, it's and harassment. Then, as you said, it's a way of making you feel better a lot of the time, which is what we all wanted. We didn't, we didn't want to feel guilty for her falling or her not eating. Right. But again, that's the other person's decision. You know, are you supposed to force feed her? Or, as you said, make her get up and get dressed and come downstairs? But I don't know. I mean, I, to prefix this, I'd had this in my previous marriage. So that frightened me the thought of what was going to, could happen to mum because it happened to my mother in law. She ended up being put in a home with dementia also. And that was a really hard thing to see because she lasted three years in a home. Um, 
and that's I think that was one of the real reasons as well that kind of made mom so adamant that she would never go in home or anything like that. You know, she wanted to stay in her house and if she died there, so be it. But she was adamant she wouldn't go into uh, any kind of facility. Well, and the other thing to keep in mind is by this <clears throat> point, when that, having that discussion, that person's ability to reason and have insight into like they've lost what, what we call executive functioning, which is, okay, wait, that would require round the clock care by this type of person. And, um, you know, and they don't, they're not capable of understanding what they're even asking for. Um, the only exception to that I'll see in some situations is where somebody agrees to go home on hospice mm -hmm. and they're not going to get out of bed. They're not going to eat or drink. Like they're just going to go home on hospice. Um, but even that's kind of hard to get to when you don't have a terminal diagnosis, yes. right? When you're otherwise just somebody recovering from a, a fall and a brain injury, you don't necessarily qualify um, to go and do something like that. Um, but that's usually with the thought that they're not going to be in that condition very long because especially if they're eating and drinking, then, um, you know, the, the natural processes will occur. That's right. Um, yeah. But, well, I I know that was a hard conversation, and I appreciate you talking about it. Um, outside of that, because of your uh, relationship to me, I'm going to ask you some unfair questions about mm -hmm. your life planning. Yeah. So now that you've seen all this happen, and you're how you're, you're you said you're sixty eight. Yeah. Right? Well, next birthday. Oh, okay. Sixty seven. I'm going to make sure it's yeah. correct then. So you're sixty seven. Um, how do you think about that? Having watched that happen, and then the drop the drama with your children, and going through all of this, and um, like what comes to your mind, or does that feel like far away? Sometimes it feels far away and some days it feels <laughs> like it's right around the corner. Um, well, our circumstance is slightly different here. I say we've been modernising the house. Um, we have had a an appropriate um, bathroom change. I Tubs taken out, walk-in showers with wider doors, um, lower handles, safety handles, um, non-slip floors. Um, we look at the general plan of the whole house, um, avoiding things that could make you fall, scatter rugs, stuff like that. Um, and of course, we've talked about, um, how could I put it, worst case scenarios, shall we say, where one or the other cannot sensibly um, or safely look after the other, um, I would say, if it's me, I don't think we... It, it's a difficult question because now that we're on a fixed income and we're older, we have what we have. We've got the house and X amount of money. Could we afford either of us to go into a sheltered accommodation for an unknown period of time I doubt it because again you all know out there how much those facilities cost you know it could be $5,000 a month or do you want to stick somebody in a place that you can afford which is you know not really going to be suitable for them but you just can't cope so it is it's an emotive thing as well do you want to be a burden on your partner um as long as we can look after each other we will um i think down the road we'll have to really discuss about what would happen if there's only one of us left and you've got failing health i think if it's a matter of just if i die and jackie's here everything that we've got is hers if her health failed and like most people, um, she couldn't look after herself. I know that she's got a daughter who would look after her, but I'm just talking in generalities. If that wasn't the case where Rebecca and her family weren't willing or couldn't 
for some reason. They may have moved away, may have moved out of state or emigrated for all I know. But at least then she would have some money around her that she could possibly liquidate and if that came to the, the worst scenario, yeah, move into a sheltered accommodation or something. You know, you could maybe sell the house and buy these places where it's you've got autonomy, you know, you, you haven't got somebody there all the time. Yeah. But there's somebody there to make sure that you're alive every day and that you're eating. And, you know, and that would be the sensible thing to do, I think. What do you feel about in-home care? I, I would accept in-home care as long as it isn't going to bankrupt uh, me. I mean, you've got to be sensible. I say I'm not like my mum in that way. I would be acceptable of somebody coming in to help me bathe. Yeah. Or, you know, to make sure that I've got shopping and stuff like that. I am not, you know, I wouldn't object to help. I would rather have help and be able to stay here until it was really got to the point where you couldn't. Right, right. That may prolong your my quality of life or Jackie's quality of life. You know, you could still have some uh, independence, um, Hopefully, you wouldn't be too much of a burden on the rest of your family, and you're helping yourself. And yeah. I think that you've got to try and help yourself as much as you can, and be sensible about it. We're all going to get old. We're all going to die. Um, it's how you manage that later period of life. Um, I don't want to be a burden on anybody, so. You know, you just have to see. You don't know what's around the corner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I and I don't <clears throat> I don't want to be the morose one that's no. always worrying about that um, because there's a lot of instances where people. Um, what I'm hoping for myself is you're in good health when you die. Yeah. And people always think the opposite. They're like, "Oh, how could that person die? They were in perfect health." And I, the <laughs> I is, I don't want my health failing for no, for years and years before. I'm actually gone. Um, so uh, hopefully I'm not speaking that into the universe. But, um, that, I mean, that's kind of the way I I guess that you could think of it both ways. Um, but when somebody has all of their function about them and then there's a heart attack or there's a brain bleed or something, and I, as, as tragic and as horrible as that is, I guess in my mind, I've just seen so many alternatives where they survive something like that and their quality of life is so so extremely low um and and that's what motivates me even you know david and i are going through and writing our own um living wills which is neither of us want to be in that condition if we can't mm -hmm. um interact with other people and perceive you know things so anyway that's super depressing let's talk about something <laughs> fun um, tell me something funny about England. What do you miss the most? What do I miss the most about England? It's a beautiful place and it's a great place to visit. Um, I'm still, I miss, um, my friends who are there. Oh, unfortunately, like most people who are getting older, you know, a lot of them have passed on. Um, I miss my club. That's about the only thing that there is, really. Yeah, there's not a lot. Um, and the way things are going there now at the moment, I don't really... It wouldn't be an option, let's say, for me to leave the States and go back and li live in England, even if Jackie, say, passed before me. It's yeah, not I was shocked when you told me that. I asked you that one time. Yeah. It's not like, a, you know, oh, I've got three kids there. Um, they're grown-up adults, and I'm sure that they're kind of really breathing... <laughs> a big sigh of relief that they haven't got to do anything for dad when he gets old. Yeah. They've still got their mom, you know, and that will be – and I hope actually that kind of – the experience that we've been through with grandma will make them slightly more aware of what could happen with right. their own parents and make them think about it, especially in the way it's affected everybody. Because it's bad enough to have bad feelings against one parent, but you don't want it again, you know. 
to affect the mom right as well so yeah this um it's sobering thought but all of this is inevitable so this was supposed to be the non-depressing oh sorry episode. we got off the phone is it buckingham palace is it the royal <laughs> weddings what else do you miss the curry Oh yeah, can't get a d decent Indian curry in <laughs> in San Antonio. <laughs> but yeah, we, I loved the. That was another part of uh, things. Some of the food as well that I enjoyed. You can't, just can't get here, which is strange. You know, you, yeah. you'd think that you could get anything, but they, they eat more than fish and chips there. Oh yeah, and and by the way, we don't just live on boiled beef and potatoes, as a lot of Americans seem to think. Yeah. Oh, the food's so bland in England. No, we've got exactly the same food as we've got here. Yeah. Yeah, restaurant-wise, should I say. But, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful place to go. Where where should if people do travel to England, where's a hidden oh, treasure hidden they gems. should go? They should. The Lake District. Yeah, the Lake District, Scotland. Um, Scotland I would always not in England. No, well, no, well, <laughs> in, okay, go to York. <laughs> No, no there, are, there are beautiful places in England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. I find most of my friends from America, they think England consists of London, um, Liverpool, and then Glasgow or Edinburgh. <laughs> no, flying to the airport, rent the smallest economy car that you can get into, and if you're flying into London, drive north. Avoid all the big towns and see the beautiful countryside. Yeah. There's a lot of history, um, a lot of beautiful places to visit that are very cheap to to visit. And you'll see the real England. Um so I um the last thing I'll ask you, and I'm aware when <clears throat> I talk to people about their parents that we're not allotting enough time to give the full complexity of any parent and oh yeah um and this is never about um some sort of final <laughs> yay or nay about somebody or whatever everybody's relationship with their parent is complex but <laughs> um i wanted you to talk about your mom in terms of her gardens and things exactly. that um you remember fondly of oh, yeah. growing up you mentioned she was a caretaker so she took care of a lot of people she was a resource for her community. She had what I had heard were gorgeous gardens. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, she was very active. She was an outdoor person. Um, she loved to be outdoors. She got a really proper English garden. proper English garden. Yeah, and she worked hard on it. It became harder and harder as she got older. But she even up until virtually years. yeah, up until yeah. about two years before she actually died, she would get out there all. 100 pounds of her, and she would spend eight or nine hours digging, weeding, mowing lawns. She worked, and it was spectacular at times um, what she did. She loved that, and she loved, um, she was an, an active member of the, uh, the Women's Institute. So she loved going on trips with all the other merry widows because there they, they all there were no men left you right. know, by this time. It started off with about 12 couples and ended up with 11 women. <laughs> yeah. all, all the guys had Somebody should look on. into that, Stephen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Statistically, that seems kind of... <laughs> yeah, and she, she loved walking, as I said. She, was, um, she loved dancing. She was into uh, line dancing and country dancing. And as I said, when she the big decline was when she broke her foot here. Yeah, that was the the beginning of the end. When she couldn't go walking, she couldn't get out in the garden. Um, she couldn't go dancing, and that really, um, as I say, was the beginning of the end. She became depressed and angry because she couldn't do what she wanted to do. And, of course, like most people, she couldn't accept that it was because she was getting old and that right. you, you've got to slow down and do less or different things. You know, in her in mind, up until um, the dementia, she, like a lot of us, might be 80 but still thinks she's 20. Well, and I, 
I'm going to go on another tangent and then I <coughs> promise that'll be the, the end. Okay. Um, um, the projections of my children's lifespan is now well over a hundred, even into 120 with all the advancements yeah. and better nutrition and all these things. And so we are looking at either this generation or the one uh, behind them being in their eighties, caring for somebody in their 100s. Yep. And so we haven't quite figured this out. Oh, yeah. And we've extended uh, life expectancy consecutively each year, except for COVID. It finally actually went down. But the overall trend has been higher and higher and higher. And um, if that trend continues, which it expect it is expected to, then I, I'm just thinking of how wild this podcast would be interviewing an 85 year old taking care of their 110 year old parent. Um, And with the birth rate declining, there's this head scratching numbers that you would crunch and think, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work. Um, As my son said, or was it my daughter and that podcasts that it will be robots. Like they're all convinced that robots will maybe, maybe, um, maybe that's true. But anyway, so I'm thinking about this, like we're very focused on 60 somethings taking care of 80 somethings, but in in a hundred years, we could be way off. I yeah. Mean, not great. 80 would be young <laughs> and then a yeah. um, hundred would be like, oh, they're really getting up in the triple digits, you know? <laughs> so, anyway, so thank you for this lovely conversation. Thank you for sharing. I know this is not an easy topic and um, I hope to have you back again. You're welcome. No, I'd be glad to. I hope you helped. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to take just a moment to review the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and occasional entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. By listening to the podcast, we are not creating a patient-doctor relationship between you and myself or any of the guests. Really, it's just me and a possible guest or two, sometimes three, sitting around talking about difficult topics related to aging parents. If you have or suspect that you might have a medical problem or condition, you should seek advice from a licensed medical professional. If you have any questions or concerns, please read the full disclaimer in the show notes or contact me directly. Thank you again for joining us today. I can't wait to see you next week. Have a good day.